Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. You guys can take a seat. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today. How about you? All right. So as many of you know, I recently had surgery. I got eight screws in my right labrum, and rehabbing it has been just a barrel of fun. Like most days are somewhere on the scale of uncomfortable to excruciating. But at least I was feeling super encouraged because I was making great progress until a couple weeks ago, and then it just stopped moving any further. And I learned that I have some sort of impingement in there, whatever that means. But at physical therapy now, instead of just stretching, I get to do deep tissue work, which is a code word for lay on a table and get pushed on and pinched and poked in places that are incredibly painful, and then be sore and bruised for a few days and go do it all over again. It's the best, and I'm totally not bitter and angry at the universe right now. (laughs) Just kidding. I am. I've been on the struggle bus lately where, you know, like one problem becomes the lens through which you see the entire world, and because something's wrong, you convince yourself that everything is just wrong. It's the worst, and you all know what I'm talking about, and I think if we're not careful, that lens can become a lifestyle. We know people like that, people who are chronically unhappy. We see them at family gatherings, right? Like that one cousin who can't stop bringing up stuff that happened 20 years ago. Remember when you stole my blue crayon and I was still using it? Like, all right, bitter Betty, it's time to get over it. Like, we're too old for this. I think the statute of limitations on crayon theft runs out the first day you wake up sore from nothing other than sleeping while old. That's how you know it's time to grow up and move on. But seriously, hurt and frustration and brokenness are an inescapable part of life. We have real pain and real problems that occasionally leave us in a spot where happiness is hard to come by. And so this morning, as we continue our series, How Happiness Happens, I want to talk to everybody in here who has problems. Everybody in here who's ever felt like their circumstances were threatening their faith. Everybody in here who worries sometimes. And if you're thinking, oh, that's not me, I'm off the hook. I got one thing to say to you, and I'm going to let Miracle Max's wife say it for me. Liar! 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 Liar, it is you, and it's me, and it's us. Brokenness is a part of existence in this world, and worry is a natural human emotion that steals our joy. The CDC recently did a survey of working adults in America and found that 86% self-identify as chronic worriers. And on average, they worry an hour and 15 minutes a day, or an hour and 50 minutes a day about various things, which adds up to 13 hours a week, 28 days, almost a month out of every year spent worrying. That's a lot. And my first instinct when I read it was to think, I feel like that estimate's a little high. And then I started looking back at the last month of my life. I've read so many articles about disease and war and famine and corruption and more. I've had conversation after conversation after conversation talking with people about serious health problems, relationships that are falling apart, worries about work and fears about the future, and it's all so heavy. Like I walked out of a meeting a couple weeks ago and felt like I had a thousand pounds 
on my shoulders. And I got in my car and turned on the radio, and in a bit of intense irony, Bobby McFerrin's Don't Worry, Be Happy was playing. And I had to roll my eyes for most of my life. I loved that song. I was like, yeah, don't worry, be happy. I think it sucked me in because it's a catchy tune, but I got so mad at it. While I was driving the other day, I was like, I don't think that's how it works. I also don't think happiness is the opposite of worry. I don't know what the dictionary or the thesaurus have to say about that, but I think as the shattered nature of our universe invades our schedules and our minds, it's not quite as simple as just deciding to be happy instead of worrying, because our happiness fades a whole lot quicker than our difficult circumstances do. And so if, if happiness is not the opposite of worry, what is? Faith. Faith is the opposite of worry. And what I want us to see this morning is that happiness happens, or more significantly, joy happens when we place our faith in the right object. But I want to be clear about what I mean when I say faith, because I think we tend to use that word culturally really interchangeably with the word belief, and they're not quite the same thing. The word we translate faith in the New Testament is this Greek word pistis. And in the first century, in secular contexts, that was the word they used for a warranty. Like if you buy this thing, it'll work for X number of years. And if it doesn't, you get a new one or you get your money back. And so when I say faith, I'm talking about God's guarantee stamped on the box that he is who he says he is and he will do what he promises us he will do. Faith is trust that God is God and he's in control even when we look around at our lives and it doesn't feel like it at all. And I want us to know that that faith, that trust we have is not based on an idea. It's not based on some ethereal concept of truth that we've been asked to cognitively assent to in our minds. Our faith and trust is built on a historical event. Jesus Christ stepped out of eternity into history to be with us, and then he walked around claiming to be God, which wasn't that unique. There were a lot of wild people in the first century who said, I'm divine. And then he got killed by the Romans, which also wasn't unique. They crucified tons of people. But on the third day, he rose again, and nobody had pulled that one off before. Like, he said he would do it, and then he did it. He conquered death from the inside so that we could be forgiven and set free. And he invites us to put our faith in him, to trust that when he said, it is finished, that counts for us. It's an incredible invitation, you guys, but it's not always easy to accept. Sometimes putting our faith in Jesus is difficult because we have a lot of things to worry about. We have bills to pay and tests to pass and deadlines to meet and spouses to communicate with or or try to and rebellious kids and aging parents and houses that need to be fixed and a vitriolic, hateful world and cars that are on their last legs and stress about our jobs and our marriages and a whole lot more. It is impossible to navigate life without finding plenty of things that shake our faith that God is present and faithful to his promises. But if you're in that space this morning, or if you ever have been in that spot where you're like, I have faith, or at least I'm trying to, I, I want to believe, but sometimes I feel like I'm on this seesaw of like doubt and faith and, and up and down, and I'm, I'm trying to trust, but it feels like fear and worry are kicking down the door of my life and threatening to steal my joy. If that's you, I have good news. What Jesus actually says about faith might be the most encouraging thing you've ever heard about what it looks like to follow him. 
If you've got a Bible, you can crack it over to the book of Matthew, chapter 13. If you hit Malachi, keep going. If you hit Mark, go back. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, no worries. The words are going to be up on the screen. And if you need one or your kids do, we have a bunch at the Next Steps table in the lobby. They're free. They're our gift to you. Please grab one. But at the end of Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable. And a parable is basically a story with a point. Parable is a compound Greek word that means to cast alongside of. And so what Jesus would do all the time is take a difficult concept like forgiveness or the kingdom of God or faith and cast it alongside of a super relatable story about losing something in your house or farming that all the people listening to him could easily wrap their minds around. All right, so this is what it says in Matthew 13, 31. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Jesus is talking on a a communal level and a personal level here. And on a communal level, what we're doing right now is a great example of what he means. You want to talk about something big that grew from almost nothing, look at the church. All right, let's rewind 2,000 years and zoom in. And what you've got is 13 dudes wandering around the desert. And their leader, from a purely human perspective, quit his job as a carpenter to become homeless and walk around the countryside telling stories. That's, That's what happened. He never even wrote a book. One time he knelt down and he like scribbled in the dirt with his finger and we don't even know what he wrote. The good folks at Lifeway Christian Bookstores think it was one of those fish and that's why they'll sell you one to put on your car. I am not convinced. But either way, the disciples were incredibly unimportant and they had zero influence. One of them didn't even make it to the end. I mean, it was bad. And yet, God took that ragtag group and used them to radically reroute the story of the world. The historian from Yale, Yaroslav Pelikan, once wrote this about Jesus. Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible, with some sort of super magnet, to pull up out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? Almost nothing. That's the legacy of the church, you guys. And you know how it started? A group of people decided to get together in community around the idea that Jesus is who he says he is. And he died and rose again for us, and that's good news. And 2,000 years later, half a world away, here we are. Like revision is still living out this ancient vision of doing life and faith together, of helping people meet Jesus and follow him fully, of living into the beauty of the gospel and sharing that good news with our city. And I love it that Jesus uses a mustard tree for this parable. If you know anything about mustard, and I don't know why you would, other than the fact that it tastes horrible, I think we can all agree on that. It's disgusting. I'll fight you if you want to disagree. (laughs) Anyway, mustard, really tiny seed. I thought about bringing one with me, but you wouldn't have been able to tell, so just pretend that I have one. It's the same thing. But it grows into a tree that looks like this. The crazy thing about a mustard tree is it's actually bigger underground than it is above ground. It has this colossal root system. And so if you planted one in your garden, as a lot of people in the ancient world did, and you wanted to remove it, it would leave a huge hole. 
I think that's a killer vision for the local church. Like, leaving a hole when we're gone. If we do that, right, not just like build a big revision church, but chase the mission God's giving us while planting other churches, planting other mustard seeds around the city of Des Moines and the state of Iowa and the Midwest, then hopefully if we ever disappeared, people would notice and they'd miss us. They'd say, wow, something is wrong. There's a hole because revision is gone. Like a mustard tree changes the ecosystem around it. A healthy church does the same thing. It subtly changes the flavor of a city. Jesus is also talking in Matthew 13 on a personal level. And I think this is huge for all of us who ever encounter circumstances that challenge our faith. Jesus says faith is like a, a mustard seed. And he's saying even if you have a tiny little amount of it, you have no idea what God can do in and through your life. God makes big things out of small faith repeatedly. It's what he does. Our God is in the big thing business. And one of my favorite examples of this comes from the story of a guy in the New Testament who had a demon-possessed son. Mark 9, 17 says, a man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. A quick time out. I know a lot of you parents of teenagers are praying that happens to your kid, but it gets worse, all right? Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You faithless generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Now, I don't know if you guys picked up on this in the story. It's pretty subtle, but Jesus is a little frustrated with his boys right here. Like he wasn't talking to the crowd when he said faithless generation. He was talking directly to the disciples. And my guess is that when they heard that, their first response was like, wait a minute, faithless? Like we left everything to follow you. We, we have faith. What do, you, what do you mean when you say we're faithless? And what does, me, or what does Jesus mean by that? Hang on to that question. I'm going to come back to it. First, let's finish the story. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Try to imagine being this dad, watching your kid suffer feeling completely hopeless because it's been years and years and nothing's getting better. I don't know if you've ever had a sick kid, but you would do anything to see them healed. And this guy shows up and he looks at Jesus and he says, if you can help us, would you? Like some people told me that you can do stuff. I don't even know if I believe them all the way. I'm not sure that you can, but if you can, would you take pity on my son? And my guess is some of us are sitting here this morning in a similar spot. Maybe you didn't even want to come to church today and you barely dragged yourself in here on an if. 
Something's broken and hurting right now. You didn't see it coming, but it feels like life is fraying at the seams and the pain is real. And you're thinking, Jesus, if, I don't even know, I've heard that you can. I've heard that you've done it in other people's lives, but I don't, I don't know if you can do it for me. I don't know if you even would do it for me, but if you can do something, would you please do anything? And it's easy to convince ourselves that we're in a bad spot if that's where we are, but I want to tell you you're right where you need to be. Because when you find yourself in an impossible situation, you're in the perfect place for God to do something impossible. You're in a spot where God can do in and through your life more than you could possibly imagine. And the temptation in those moments, I understand it, is to say, yeah, but my faith isn't big enough for that. Like, I, I don't believe enough for God to show up. For me, I have this tiny, small faith. I don't think he's going to move in my life. But look at this dad. Where's he at? If it were possible to come up with some sort of way to measure faith, like a faithometer, that guy's faithometer is not full. His faith is not cranked to 11. His tank is not completely full of faith. The first word out of his mouth when he makes his request to Jesus is if. Like, if. And Jesus responds, if I can. If. Anything's possible for the one who believes. If you'll trust, not that God's gonna do exactly what you want or answer your prayer exactly how you expect it, but that God loves you and he's moving, then just see what he can do. And immediately this guy responds, I do believe, but please help me overcome my unbelief. I love that so much. It's so real and honest. Like show of hands, how many of you have ever been in that spot where you're like, God, I, I believe, but would you help me overcome my unbelief? That's a lot of hands. You faithless generation, how long shall I put up with you? I'm just kidding. We've all been there. We've been that dad. I have been that dad. I'll be real with you up here. I find myself consistently on my knees crying out, God, I do believe, but would you just please help me with my unbelief? And the worst part about that is I have been in the room praying and seeing God move. I've witnessed miracles. I have watched God do impossible things so many times that I should never doubt again. And yet I doubt. Sometimes I pray and God doesn't do what I expected. Sometimes I pray and God just says no. And I am left crying out, God, I believe. I know that you're good. I trust in you. But please help me overcome this unbelief that lives in me. There's a reason the words of that desperate father are in the Bible. God put them in there for us and we need to get it. Because I think some church people have been taught, some of us have been taught over and over and over again. And we've bought into the idea that you gotta somehow grow your own faith really big if God's gonna move in your life. Like as soon as you get your, your faithometer high enough, then maybe God will unleash his blessings for you. There's some sort of secret formula you can work to get out of God what you want from God. And if you're not seeing him move, if you're not seeing his blessings, you must not have believed good enough. You must not have had quite enough faith in him. Because we all know the bigger the faith, the bigger the prizes. 
Like there are people who teach that and people who believe that and we wanna believe it because we like systems that are built on our own effort that we can control. But I hear that stuff and I can't help but think, whose faith do you think this whole thing is built on? Your faith in him or his faithfulness to you? Listen, if I gotta build my life and bet my eternity on either the level of my faith in Jesus or the level of Jesus' faithfulness to me, It's not a hard choice. I'm banking everything on his faithfulness. Everything. And so this guy comes to Jesus and he cries out with this tiny little mustard seed, invisible faith. I I believe. Can you help my unbelief? And Jesus responds, that's not going to cut it. God helps those who help themselves. Only once your faith has reached an acceptable Level. Once you have the faith of a TV preacher or an Instagram prophet, then I'll heal your son. Also money, I'll give you everything you want. Some of you are looking at me like you don't think Jesus actually said that. Well, bring a Bible next Sunday. They let me put whatever I want up on the screen. <laughs> but like, of course Jesus didn't say that. I have no idea how like the thinking that he might have said it or might have taught it or, or might have believed that ever invaded the thinking of the church, but it has So many of us have been taught and convinced that if we don't have big enough faith, God's not going to move in our lives. But this guy showed up and said, I have barely enough faith to even be here. He said, Jesus, I believe just enough to show up. And Jesus moved. This is when Jesus saw the crowd was running to the scene. He rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And the spirit shrieked and convulsed and violently came out. And the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. That's incredible. And his disciples are watching this and they just tried to do the same thing, right? And then they, they failed and it didn't work. And so they pulled Jesus aside because they don't want to get made fun of publicly again. He already embarrassed them in front of everybody. And they're like, okay, 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 okay. How did you do it? And we didn't do it. This is what we read. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. They've been with Jesus long enough. They're like, oh, prayer. We should have thought of prayer. That's like following Jesus 101. Why didn't we pray? And this is what Jesus was getting at when he called them a faithless generation. All right, this is what he meant by that. He didn't mean they didn't have faith at all. Everybody has faith in something. When Jesus said, you faithless generation, he was telling them that they had placed their faith in the wrong thing. When they encountered this demon, they put their faith in themselves. They believed they could drive it out all on their own. That's why they didn't pray. They're like, I've seen Jesus do this thousands of times. I could just do what he did and it'll work. And Jesus looked at him and said, no, it won't work. Your faith is in the wrong thing. Which kind of begs the question for us, where's your faith? Think about it. Where is your faith? And when it comes to faith, all of us have options. We're going to put it in someone or something. And so the question is, who or what are you going to put your faith in? You can put it in yourself. A whole lot of people do it. A lot of works righteousness Christians do it. A lot of people who are following other works-based religions do it. And most people in our secular culture put their faith in themselves. They say, I'm the only one I can trust. I'm going to Just do it all on my own. I will pull myself up and out. I got it. And if you don't think I'm right about that, go to any bookstore and tell me what the largest section is. It's self-help. 
which is kind of funny because if we could help ourselves, I don't think we'd need that many books about it. It's just not working out any better for us than it is for the disciples. Seriously, how is yourself going to get yourself out of the mess yourself got yourself into? Your best thinking got you here. You're going to think your way out? Good luck. Like, we can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. The physics don't work. You guys know that that phrase started out as a joke? It was a satirical expression in the 18th century until some brilliant Americans decided to turn it into a national ethos. Be like, yeah, bootstrapping, that's what we do here. But nothing happens when you bootstrap it. Nothing happens when you trust yourself. And so some of us decide we're going to trust other people. We put our future and our hope and our life in their hands and we trust in them to be some sort of a savior that they cannot be. We put an expectation on them that they will never live up to. And, you know, whether it's a a friend or a teacher or a mentor or a husband or a wife or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a pastor or a parent, we think once their world revolves around me, then everything's going to be okay. And everything's never okay. Sometimes we're tempted to put our faith in, in systems, like an economic system. If I, if I just grind and I get the grades, I can get the scholarships, so I can get into the college, so I can get the degree, and I can get the job. And if I just work crazy hard at that job, eventually the world is going to give me what I deserve. Have you seen the world? Like, if you think it's working for you, watch Shark Week, okay? Because you could do it all right. You could get the degree, you could get the job, you could make crazy money, and then go on a fabulous tropical vacation where you're kayaking, and the world wants to eat you. All right? It does. It's scary out there. That's why I'm an avid endorsman. All right? Or some of us were like, all right, maybe not the economic system. I'm going to put my faith in the political system. Oh, if we can elect the right guy to make the right laws, to make everybody good, then we're going to exist in a perfect utopia. You guys, we have over 5,000 years of recorded human political history, thousands of years of different experiments with democracy, and here we are. I don't know if you've seen Twitter or watched the news lately, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say, if your faith is in politics, if your hope and your happiness are wrapped up there, maybe find a better thing. Because there's no escaping the spiritual reality that we have an enemy who is hell-bent on stealing, killing, and destroying our souls. And part of his strategy is to create this world that will bait you down a road and then blame you for getting to the end of it. This happens with everything, with our, with our relationships, with sex, with money, with power, with possessions, with your career. Like, oh, this is the pathway to happiness. Take it, take it, take it, take it. And you're like, all right, I'll take it. Oh, how dare you end up there? Who you trust matters. We are all going to put faith in someone or something so who or, or what are you going to put faith in? It may not seem like it matters that much right now, but it will when the next storm hits. When the wind and the waves come crashing, you're going to fall back on the foundation you've built. Or when push comes to shove, it matters for your happiness, your joy, your purpose, and your future, who your faith is in. It did for the disciples. They met this demon-possessed boy, and they put their faith in themselves, and then they failed. And they asked Jesus why. And he told him, well, this kind can only come out through prayer. And he also told him, it's because you have such little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. That's such an incredible promise. Jesus doesn't say, if you have faith the size of a mountain, you can move a mountain. 
Jesus says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, tiny faith, God can and will do incredible things in your life. And his promise that nothing will be impossible for you. It doesn't mean that everything's going to work out the way you want it to, or God's going to say yes to every prayer. That's not it. It means that as you chase him, God will give you such a big view of himself that you have peace no matter what's going on. Now look at the people in your life who are praying like crazy and their circumstances aren't changing. Maybe they're even getting worse, and yet they have an increasing sense of joy and an increasing sense of peace and an increasing sense of hope. It's not because God's giving them everything they wanted. It's because God's giving them himself. See, in faith, God is the prize, not our circumstances. God's the prize, not our circumstances. And just ask those people what's happening. Like, how in the world are you so happy? How do you have so much hope? Your life is a disaster right now. And they'll tell you, I've learned that my treasure is my savior, not my circumstances. Like we spend a lot of time trying to manipulate our situation like that's gonna be the key to making us happy and it's gonna cure worry in our lives. But God's got a bigger, better offer for us, faith, that he is who he says he is and he loves us no matter what's going on around us. C.S. Lewis once said it like this. He said, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason once accepted despite your changing moods. Like your moods, your situation, your circumstance, that's going to change constantly. But your God is not. Our trust in him is the anchor of our souls. And here's what I want everybody to know this morning, because I think it holds the key to unlocking the joy and the happiness we long for. It's not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith that matters. It's not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith that matters. The late great pastor and thinker Tim Keller once put it this way. He said, if you ever fall off a mountain and happen to grab a branch on the way down, it's not your belief that matters at that point. It's the branch that matters in that point. Because a strong faith in a weak branch is going to be fatally inferior to a weak faith in a strong branch. And for us, it's the exact same thing. A weak faith in a big God is infinitely better than a strong faith in a small substitute. God is who he says he is. He promises us that, and he continually shows up for us. Like small, weak, mustard seed faith is all Jesus says we need to move mountains. And the tragic reality of our messed up world is that all of us have mountains that need to be moved. I don't know what your mountain is this morning whether it's a relationship that's fallen apart, whether it's stress about your job, whether it's worry about your future, whether it's abuse that you've suffered or an addiction that you have or just fear and anxiety that feel like you're, they're crushing you. I don't know what your mountain is, but I know the one who can move it. I know the one who can move it and I know putting your faith in him, trusting that he's in control even when you look around and it doesn't feel like it at all. Putting your faith in that makes all the difference, even if it's not very much faith. Because I know some of us sit here and we're thinking like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I believe enough for God to move. I'm not, I'm not worthy of God doing anything in my life. I'm not bringing enough to the table. Like maybe my mountain could move if I had faith like you, Mike. If I had pastor-sized faith, oh, then God could do something in my life. I, I wish. I'm small and broken. I'm not here, and revision is not here because I have mountain-sized faith. I am only here because like, 
failed and faithless as I am, by God's grace, I have a mustard seed faith in a mountain-moving God who has never failed to be faithful to me. And he's inviting you into that exact same type of faith. And so if you're sitting here and you're crushed by worry, if you're staring down a mountain that you cannot climb and you cannot move, if it feels like the last reservoirs of hope are drying up inside your soul and happiness is impossible, and if you're convinced, I don't have enough faith for God to move, my invitation to you this morning is just show up, just like that dad did. Show up and bring Jesus what you got because Jesus never said you needed a mountain-sized faith for God to move. Jesus said faith is like a mustard seed that a farmer planted in the ground. And though it's the smallest of all seeds, when it grows, it becomes a tree and birds perch in its branches. And I swear to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to a mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Put your trust in Jesus. It costs nothing and it changes everything. Will you guys pray with me? Thank you, Jesus for loving us enough that our lives and our future and our hope aren't built on our own faith, aren't built on our own success, aren't aren't built on our own level of confidence, but they're built on your faithfulness to us. Lord, we're all here, failed and faithless, broken and hurting, staring down mountains that we can't climb, and we're coming to you with what we've got, trusting that you'll move. And I just pray this morning, that you would help all of us to trust that you are who you say that you are, that you'll do what you promise you'll do, that you are good and you're in control even when we can't see it, even when we don't recognize it, even when we don't know it, that you are here and you're present and you love us. Lord, give us faith that that's true so that we can walk out into a broken, hurting, shattered world where people are desperate to breathe the oxygen of your love and point them not to the size of the faith in us, but the size of the God our faith is in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.